today about a topic that um, I didn't actually plan during my fellowship that I would be um, participating in the care of these children. And it's funny how life kind of takes you in these different directions. My interest in this actually started at a Grand Rounds presentation when I was a fellow, uh, when uh, Dr. Bensler from Toronto Sick Kids came and gave a presentation on CNS vasculitis and autoimmune encephalitis. And I was fascinated that you could have kids so neurologically devastated that a year later could be back to normal. Uh, and that's really where my interest began. I try to stay in one place. I am a little technically challenged, so I apologize if I um, uh, have any wonders here. Um, in terms of my disclosures, I do receive some grant funding from Duke University and the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance for research we do through our clinic. And this presentation will include off-label discussions of treatments, as there are no current FDA-approved treatments for autoimmune encephalitis. The goal of today's talk is to really kind of highlight the complexities of making a diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis, um, describing a diagnostic approach to help make that diagnosis, and review some recently published adult diagnostic criteria and how they do and don't apply in pediatrics. Um, and then really throughout this talk to really interlace the importance of the uh, role of an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team in helping to diagnose and manage these patients. Uh, so we'll start with a case. Some of you may or may not be as familiar with autoimmune encephalitis as others in the room. So this is an eight-year-old previously healthy male who presents with about a five-minute clonic tonic seizure witnessed at home. Uh, in the emergency department, mom reports that he had a viral prodrome illness about a week prior with vomiting and diarrhea. And really since that time, he just hasn't quite been right. He's been having a lot of bad dreams. He's been more irritable, kind of aggressive with family members um, when they interrupt what he's trying to do. And mom thinks he's been having hallucinations, um, talking outside of his head, talking to things that weren't there. In the emergency department, his EEG shows questionable leptiform discharges, and he started on trileptal and discharged home. He continues to have uh, ongoing behavior issues over the next few days, which are attributed to the seizure medication, so that's changed to Keppra but he continues to deteriorate and is admitted for a full workup. His initial workup reveals a white blood cell count in CSF of 44. He has a normal MRI. He has an extensive infectious um, evaluation with some organisms um, more predominant in North Carolina, um, as well as your basic um, labs for inflammatory parameters, blood counts, and metabolic panel, all of which are normal. He's given a presumed diagnosis of viral encephalitis and discharged home, although it is noted in his record that he has not returned to baseline. And time of that admission, this is uh, an example of these bad dreams that he was having. He had two kinds of, quote, bad dreams. This is one where he will wake up, um, he kind of has this raking type movement that he does, tries to get out of bed, comes very agitated, and they try to put him back in bed. Um, but eventually he will be able to be settled back down and very quickly falls right back to sleep again. He continued to have these kind of nightmares. Some of the nightmares also involved him waking up kind of with a very startled look, reaching his arm out before then trying to get out of bed. So those were the two types of bad dreams that he was having. He continued to worsen uh, at, um, at home um, and uh, had these zombie-like behaviors that were um, mom had noticed where he would stare off and talk kind of gibberish. At this point, he wasn't really having much independent um, conversation or language. He was seen by his primary care physician multiple times over this period of time who felt that he was having some behavior issues related to his new diagnosis and the trauma of having these procedures done and that mom needed to do more to set limits. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I usually don't talk quietly. So um, that he need, they, mom needed to be doing more to set limits for him at home and that it was really kind of more of a parenting issue. However, over the next several days, he continued to deteriorate. And all of these quotes actually come from his medical records. Um, uh, he continued to deteriorate and mom insisted on readmission. At the time of that admission, he has 
episodes um, where he's hallucinating. Uh, he has these repeated, um, sorry, this is a little dark on your screen, um, repeated movements where he kind of comes and scratching the side of his face, um, tracing things in the air. He would sometimes be staring or looking at uh, objects that we were not able to see. Um, and then these are some of these zombie-like episodes he would have. Um, he would either be staring off with his eyes open or have his eyes closed and do this very characteristic posturing. Um, and he could hold his hand in that position for long periods of time. And he could alternate between these two states of being a little bit more alert, although certainly not interactive, and more um, uh, really unresponsive. During this second admission, um, he is seen by psychiatry, neurology, <coughs> and infectious disease. He has a repeat MRI, which is normal. He has a repeat EEG, which is not great quality, no clear seizures, but some diffuse slowing is noted. He started on Seroquel because of these behavior issues. He's becoming more violent and inconsolable and is starting to do some self-harming behaviors. He has a repeat lumbar puncture with no white blood cells. This is 13 days after his initial lumbar puncture. And at that time, during this period of time, he's received no treatment with immunotherapy, no steroids or IVIG. He does have uh, testing sent from his serum and his CSF for some of the antineuronal antibodies associated with autoimmune encephalitis, and he comes back positive for NMDA receptor antibodies in both his serum and CSF, and he is diagnosed with uh, autoimmune, uh, NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. So some of you in the room will be like, aha, uh -huh, and other people that have never heard of that before, so let's start with what autoimmune encephalitis is. So autoimmune encephalitis is an autoimmune condition where your immune system is attacking the brain and causing it to not function normally. Uh, it presents with an acute or subacute presentation, classically, and really the hallmark of this disease is not only the acuity of onset, but also the fact it affects multiple domains. And most commonly, you're going to see cognitive decline, in particular short-term memory loss, seizures, movement disorders, very prominent psychiatric symptoms, sometimes so prominent you really have a hard time seeing anything else because the psychiatric symptoms are so loud, um, as well as sleep disorders, so sleeping all the time or not sleeping at all. You'll have kids who may not sleep for several days. Autoimmune encephalitis has been recognized for a long time and was classically thought of as a paramyoplastic condition uh, where patients who had uh, cancers had an immune response to that tumor and you would get a secondary uh, injury to the tissues from that immune response. Uh, in those patients, the uh, antibodies that were detected were not felt to be pathologic and they were more a reflection of an immune response and they uh, were resulting from a neuronal injury and cell death. And so those uh, forms of autoimmune encephalitis were not very reversible with immunotherapy. And the goal of the treatment of those perineoplastic syndromes was really to prevent further progression, but not necessarily to see recovery. In 2007, Dr. Damo and his group reported a new antibody associated with autoimmune encephalitis. And what was really exciting about this antibody, there were several things very exciting about this antibody. One is that it was an antibody to the receptors on the surface of neurons. It affected how the nerve worked, but it did not actually cause injury or cell death especially early in the course. And so these patients had remarkable reversibility in their symptoms with immunotherapy. And you could take patients, these women all presented with prominent psychiatric symptoms, psychosis initially, but many of them progressed on to requiring ICU level care for cardiopulmonary support. And these women have uh, recovery and return to baseline, and the majority of them with immunotherapy. This uh, first case series was reported with patients with teratomas, um, but since that time has been reported in men, women, and children with and without teratomas. Um, and so it was really kind of a, a frame shift in terms of how we thought about autoimmune encephalitis and the potential for reversibility. And it was really the first form of autoimmune encephalitis that's really seen in, in kids in, in high enough numbers um, that we would really be looking for it. The classic symptoms associated with NMD encephalitis are these kind of 10 domains that are affected. So mood and behavior, so frank psychosis, depressive symptoms, personality changes. 
cognitive decline and memory impairments, in particular short-term memory loss. Um, this really causes more of an limbic encephalitis. Language deficits or progressive loss in language, seizures, uh, movement disorders, and then uh, some more uh, ataxia or hemiparesis, especially in children. And in the severe cases, or as patients progress, autonomic instability, loss of consciousness, and central hyperventilation. Uh, and so, you know, it's really kind of once this disease was recognized, it was thought to explain many patients in the ICUs who had um, progressive uh, viral encephalitis with no etiology or encephalitis NOS. Uh, in 2013, a study was published, this is the largest cohort study of patients with NMDA receptor encephalitis, almost 600 patients. And what was great from a pediatric perspective is they included adults and children. And this disease is actually very common in children and young adults, so this is more of a pediatric age population illness, actually. And so, um, just to orient you to this slide, there we go. Um, so here we have the proportion of patients who experienced the symptom. Here we have those 10 domains that I reviewed um, just a moment ago. And then they broke the symptoms of these different domains by age. So the uh, far left is the uh, children less than 12 years of age, the middle column is the 12 to 18 year olds, and then adults greater than age 18. And you see that pretty much across all age groups, um, almost all patients have behavior and psychiatric symptoms and cognitive changes. And then you see some variability in the other domains um, depending on uh, age of patients and just overall uh, prevalence of seeing that symptom. So memory deficits are very common. Um, there's uh, less memory deficits in younger children, although this may be a function of having a difficult time assessing memory deficits in young children. Um, and then speech disorders, uh, movement disorders, uh, cerebellar ataxia and hemiparesis were actually all more common in children. Um, and the only thing that was really more common in adults was central hypoventilation. What they discovered during, in that study as well is that all patients within a first, that first month, and that's what that slide was showing you, had at least four domains affected. Um, so 100% of patients had at least four domains affected by one month into their illness. And they used that uh, evidence to help create some diagnostic criteria. And this was just pu published last year um, for the proposed diagnostic criteria for anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Uh, and so it hinges again on this history of a rapid onset um, uh, with multiple domains being affected, and they required four of these six domains. And you'll see they combined a couple of uh, uh, domains, so abnormal psychiatric behaviors and cognitive function or memory impairment um, and autonomic dysfunction and central hyperventilation. So you need four of these six symptoms, and then you need some other marker that there's an encephalopathy or an encephalitis. So either an abnormal EEG with seizure activity or a slowing, uh, or CSF changes with pleocytosis or oligoclonal bands. With that diagnosis, without those criteria, you can make a diagnosis of probable autoimmune encephalitis, NMDA subtype, um, and you could initiate therapy. You make a definitive diagnosis of NMDA encephalitis once your antibody studies come back positive. And if you have a positive antibody, you don't need to have four of the six symptoms. And part of this was a recognition you want to treat these patients early. We don't need to wait and watch them for a month until they get four symptom or domains affected. If you uh, have an antibody and they are fitting a clinical course with acute onset, and one of those symptoms, you can diagnose them and make a, a start and initiate treatment. So the other thing that the study demonstrated, um, the large cohort study, was that kids present a little different than adults. Uh, and older, the older the kid is, the more likely they are to present more like an adult. So kids are more likely to present with seizures and then progress to more of the psychiatric and behavior symptoms than movement disorders and the more severe findings of autonomic instability. Adults are more likely to present with the psychiatric features. So um, the majority of adults actually with NMDA encephalitis are presenting to psychiatrists first or, or behavioral um, subspecialists. Uh, 
as I said before, sometimes these behaviors and psychiatric symptoms can be so loud, it's very hard to see other things. And then we also have a habit of attributing um, certain changes to the medication. So they have behavior change, they're more irritable, is it the seizure medicine? They got started on antipsychotic for their psychosis, uh, and now they have a movement disorder, is that because of the medication? So you just wanna be mindful of that um, as you're thinking about these patients. The other thing this study found was that um, the more severe symptoms of the autonomic dysfunction and the hypoventilation are really seen in the higher titers. And patients tend to progress through symptoms in a somewhat predictable um, way. And the really interesting thing is as they get better, they can often go backwards in that um, progression back toward recovery. So uh, you may take a patient who's catatonic or in your ICU and suddenly you've made them um, psychotic and irritable. And you may feel that you're making the patient worse, but you're actually making the patient better. And it's very important to prepare yourself, the house officers, your nurses, the parents, that that may happen. Because um, otherwise you're feeling like you need to escalate immunotherapy, but it's really important to recognize actually that may be part of the recovery. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So for those in the room who say, okay, this is a rheumatologist, you guys do rare diseases, this is how common is this disease really? So the um, other really exciting, so many exciting things about NMD encephalitis, the other was that it's actually, though not a common disease, it is not an uncommon disease. In two studies, they showed that 1% of patients in ICUs who had previously diagnosed unclassified encephalitis actually had NMDA receptor encephalitis. The California Encephalitis Project, which prospectively collects samples, um, found that NMDA encephalitis was as common, actually four times more common than any single infectious etiology, though infections as a group are more common than NMDA encephalitis. NMDA is more common than any single entity, including HSV. So if you think about how often we send HSV, really, I'm so... No, it's, it's the, something with the mic, I think. I could, I could do this one. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that one should, should be okay. Um, so if you think of how often you send HSV, um, obviously it's a diagnosis you don't want to miss and it's negative. We should be thinking about sending NMDA in a right, correct clinical situation um, just as often. And then since the time of discovery of uh, NMDA antibodies, we've discovered, we, <laughs> researchers have discovered um, numerous other antineuronal antibodies that also bind to the surface of neurons, affect neuronal function, um, but have the same remarkable um, recovery with immunotherapy. And we've learned that there's a spectrum of these uh, presentations that kids and adults can present with and variability in the testing uh, results that we have when we're looking for the classic findings of an encephalitis. And with this in mind, this recent uh, diagnostic criteria were developed to kind of help walk through making the different diagnoses of the different subtypes of autoimmune encephalitis. We are not going to spend a lot of time today going through the different subtypes because a lot of the um, basic framework applies across diagnoses. Um, but it is a really helpful paper um, to help walk through the different subtypes. And it should be noted at the end, you can have antibody negative autoimmune encephalitis. So um, you can have a patient you diagnose with autoimmune encephalitis who does not have antibodies detected. That's likely for two reasons. One, it is well recognized we do not yet know how to identify all the known antineuronal antibodies. When they do testing, um, you send it off to the Mayo Clinic or the different places you may send, they put the serum in the CSF on brain tissue and they look in, in immunohistochemistry and see if there's any binding. And they have, um, doc the doctors there will tell you, they have books of different kind of staining patterns for antibodies. They don't yet know what they are that they're looking to try to define. They can only report the ones they know a name to call it. So they have to know what the target is, the antigen is, before they can uh, report a positive to you. But it can be very helpful if you have a high suspicion of autoimmune encephalitis, you can call the lab and they can let you know if they see this antinormal binding as just another marker that um, can be helpful to verify your diagnosis. So when we talk a little bit about the pathology of this disease, 
I'm going to do a little immunology 101. So um, for an autoimmune disease, uh, there's multiple proposed mechanisms in autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, the first is that antibodies can be made in the periphery in the tissue. To have antibody production, you need your B cells to be activated by T cells or antigen presenting cells. So you have some trigger, usually we don't know what it is, whether it's viral or tumor or some environmental trigger that causes your B cells to be uh, activated. They proliferate and they then uh, develop into plasma cells. Plasma cells are your factory, antibody factories of your immune system. Those plasma cells make antibodies. Those antibodies then cross the blood-brain barrier. So this is some other process because this is supposed to be a fairly protective barrier um, that causes that antibody to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and those antibodies can then work. The other way this can happen though is that B cells can migrate across that blood-brain barrier and develop into plasma cells in the CNS space itself and you then have intrathecal production of antibodies. This is really important when you think about your testing because if you are only testing your serum and a patient who's actually making intrathecal antibodies, you're going to have a false negative result. This is particularly uh, notable in NMDA, where about 20% of patients will only have intrathecal production of antibodies. Their serum testing will be negative. So this is for all the house officers out there, like, really, we need an LP on this patient who's like psychotic? Is the yes, we really need the LP on this patient um, because uh, you can miss some of those findings, in addition to getting your other um, labs looking for the uh, itis of encephalitis. Once those antibodies are in the CNS, they can work on different ways on the receptors or ion channels. They can bind and just block the function of that channel. Uh, in NMDA, they actually bind the receptors and cause cross-linking and cause those receptors to be internalized into the neuron. Uh, this doesn't damage the receptors, and once you remove the antibody, those receptors can be repopulated back on the neuronal surface, and the neuron can go back to functioning normally. And some antibodies can actually trigger a complement-mediated autoimmunity, which is a more destructive autoimmunity and can cause injury to the nerves. So depending on the antibody, you may see different features of disease, but you may also see different response to immunotherapy. Uh, so this is important uh, as you're looking through the different autoimmune encephalitides um, and the treatments associated, or how aggressive to be with treatments. So now that we all are on the same page about what autoimmune encephalitis is and how fantastic NMDA is, let's just review one more case. So this is a seven-year-old male who has a witness seizure at school, uh, and then he has another seizure in the emergency department, which wins him an admission. He has an overnight OBS admission, and the first 12 hours he's noted to be more agitated than his normal self and kind of angry, does not seem particularly happy to be hospitalized, uh, which mom says is not really typical for him. But he has no further seizures in the, in the hospital. Uh, he has a normal EEG and MRI. Uh, his agitation and irritability is attributed to the Kepra that he was started on, so that is stopped and he is discharged home. Uh, but over the next 24 hours, he has four more seizures and comes back. At this second admission, he's complaining more of headaches, and it also seems more confused and agitated. He has a slow response. He's able to answer questions, but it takes him a while to be able to do so. This is initially attributed to the loading of clonopin for the seizures. But over the next 24 hours, he clearly de declares himself more anxious and irritable, really starts having issues, interacting with people, has pur uh, purposeless movements that develop, um, is unable to follow commands, and then progresses to not be able to actually recognize his mom. Uh, the limited language he does have is really just repetitive uh, statements of words that don't make sense. Uh, he has, an, again, an MRI, which is normal. His EEG initially had been normal, but now shows multifocal seizures. So he has involvement in both the right and left, uh, as well as some diffuse slowing. His lumbar puncture reveals uh, 16 white blood cells. 
Um, he has a clinical history that looks very much like NMDA, right? He meets criteria, he has actually more than um, four domains affected. He has signs of itis with an abnormal EEG and uh, lumbar puncture abnormalities. We sent NMDA encephalitis antibodies, which were negative. We were really sure that he had NMDA. We sent him again, they were negative. We sent him to a different lab, they were negative. So he met a clinical diagnosis of probable NMDA, but it has negative antibody, and he actually would meet criteria for uh, seronegative or antibody negative autoimmune encephalitis. And so when we think about the lessons that we've learned from NMDA and how can we apply them to encephalitis as a broader category, um, some big things that we kind of can take home um, that really apply across subtypes of autoimmune encephalitis um, is that this is a disease with an acute onset, has really has a clinical phenotype affecting multiple domains. There are certain red flags that should be hinting us that this is more than psychiatric, even in patients who present with very prominent psychiatric symptoms. But one thing that's less clear is really where the boundaries of this disease are. There's a lot of variability in the symptoms that patients can have, um, as demonstrated by that large cohort study, um, in terms of uh, what symptoms patients have, the severity of those symptoms, and then how those symptoms can progress over time. They can develop new ones and, and lose old ones. The diagnostic testing is really not perfect. So um, both of our patients had normal MRIs, and over half of NMDA patients have a normal MRI, even if they're severely ill in ICUs requiring cardiopulmonary support. CSF abnormalities um, are imperfect, so uh, you can have uh, abnormalities in your CSF with white blood cells or oligoclonal bands. Um, you may have them at some times and not others, as our first patient demonstrated. So even before he received any immunotherapy, he had already cleared the white blood cells from the CSF. Um, and their other patient had um, uh, CSF changes that were noted right at the beginning. EEG abnormalities are prominent, um, but you often are going to need a long-term EEG to capture them, is what we've discovered. So as in our first patient having normal EEG and uh, his initial admission, he was on long-term EEG monitoring when his uh, subsequent seizures were noted, um, and the multifocal nature of the seizures is important. And then we haven't talked about it yet, but we will, with foreshadowing. Um, there's a variability in response to therapy, but the general rule is while these patients can get sick very quickly, the recovery does not happen usually as quickly. And you're really looking at weeks to months for that recovery. And the other thing that our group really learned is that a team approach really from the time of making a diagnosis is really helpful because there are many complicating um, features of the disease for making the diagnosis and for managing them both in the hospital and outside the hospital. Um, and that is uh, really what led to the development of our clinic. Um, this started out of a mutual uh, collaboration between Dr. Galantine, the pediatric neurologist in my institution, and myself. Um, we both were seeing these patients independently. He was like, hey, you want to do a clinic? I'm like, sure. So um, we started a half a day once a month. Um, that quickly became a half a day twice uh, a month. Then it became a full day. Now it's a full day every week. It's a third of both of our practices. Um, so we, what we have uh, in the last three years is also incorporated psychiatry, and that has really been a game changer for our experience and for our patients' experience. We actually all three go in the room, it's kind of mob effect, all three go in the room, we take a history at one time um, with the patients, we kind of interject um, with each other in terms of asking different questions, we step out of the room, we make an assessment and plan, we go back in the room and present it to the parents. And that's really been a game changer because one, um, not sure if you're aware, but psychiatric diagnosis in the US, there's a little bit of baggage that we have with that. And so um, having a psychiatrist in the room right from the beginning and really showing that they're an equal leg of this three-legged stool that we have um, has been really helpful in getting patients to, and parents to engage in the psychiatric treatments along with immunotherapy and neurologic therapies. Um, we've, uh, we'll talk more about some of the benefits of it later. 
So some of the challenges that, that we've had um, that we really feel are addressed in this clinic model is the difficulties in making a diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis because there is so much variability and there's a very large differential diagnosis that we'll talk about in a moment. Many times these children are too medically sick for a psychiatric floor and they're too medic uh, psychiatrically sick for a medical floor. Our uh, institution does not have inpatient psychiatry uh, in our hospital, so uh, we have a lot of challenges as we try to manage these kids. Um, these children often have very resistant seizures, movement disorders, and psychiatric disease, um, so it really takes a lot of day-to-day um, -day management and um, move, a lot of moving parts. Um, and the medication changes can affect each other, right? So I'm gonna start steroids on somebody that may make their psychosis worse. Um, you're starting a new medication for um, the behaviors that may lower their seizure threshold. So really working together as a team as we make those changes has been really helpful. Uh, many of these children are gonna require sustained immunotherapy, and sometimes it's difficult to know if a new symptom is a sign of them improving, um, or they're starting to engage in more regular activities and the stress of that, or if it's actually their disease flaring. Uh, and so by having this team approach, we are better able to assess those things. The common questions that come up when we get calls from outside people or when we're talking about autoimmune encephalitis, we're gonna go through each one of these kind of in the next um, bit. One is when should you think about autoimmune encephalitis? Who should you do the workup on and what workup should you do? Are there diagnostic criteria that were met? And if not, could this still be an autoimmune process? Um, when do you treat and with what? Uh, and when should I expect to see improvements? So we'll start with the approach to the diagnosis. So it's important to note that not all children with new onset neurologic or psychiatric symptoms need to work up for autoimmune encephalitis, right? So this is new onset neurologic or psychiatric symptom plus that should make you think about these conditions. Um, uh, the diagnostic workup should be one to evaluate for autoimmune encephalitis, but it's also important that we're ruling out other conditions that can mimic an autoimmune encephalitis. So you're doing both a rule in and a rule out when you're doing this workup. Uh, and there's a very large differential of things that you need to rule out. Uh, and not all patients are gonna need the same workup. And so this, again, is that team approach kind of coming in and looking for certain red flags that may take you down a metabolic road or may take you down more of an infectious road. So what's the key things to help you know who should have a workup? Your clinical history is the key. This is the anchor for making a diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis. Having an antibody positive in a kid or an adult who doesn't fit a clinical phenotype of autoimmune encephalitis is really hard to know what to do with because you can have false positive antibody results. Um, so really taking a very careful history um, is really the most important thing that you can do to make a diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis. Um, the classic hallmarks are gonna be again that acute or subacute onset, so pretty rapidly progressive symptoms in less than three months involving multiple domains, so I call it seizure plus, psychosis plus, cognitive decline plus, something, something else should be making you think that this is more than an isolated neurologic or psychiatric disease. You're, when you're taking your history, you really want to ask very pointed and specific questions. Um, the patients say they don't remember well, um, what kind of things. Well, I tell them to go put their shoes on and they get in the other room and they can't remember. Okay, can they remember the TV show that they watched, how it goes? Can the kid describe to you what they just watched? Do they remember people's names? Can they get in their Minecraft world and navigate around and know where to go, right? Those kind of day-to-day -day things. Many of these kids with true encephalitis, they're not playing their video games anymore. They're not watching television because they really can't, um, can't remember or follow those things. Um, and then looking really at functionality. Things, are they able to perform the normal activities of daily life? In our group, some of the things that we have noticed that really kind of are helpful um, hints is, is a, again, that rapid decline. Um, if patients have uh, epilepsy, um, looking for multifocal or drug-resistant epilepsy can be a good hallmark. Kids who have a, a, a acute or subacute onset but then seem to kind of <coughs> they don't really progress with other things, that would be less consistent with a diagnosis of uh, autoimmune encephalitis. 
Um, if they have psychiatric symptoms or, or um, features, but they are variable in different locations, it's only a problem at school or it's only a problem at home, that's much more consistent with more behavior. Um, in terms of psychiatric symptoms, I'm gonna just give a little shout out for catatonia here. So, um, as a rheumatologist, I don't know a lot about catatonia, to be honest here, but um, these patients can present with uh, a kind of catatonia I didn't know existed. Our institution calls it um, excitatory catatonia. I think some places it's malignant catatonia. Um, these patients don't look catatonic to a rheumatologist, um, which to me was standing in one position and, and not moving. These patients, to me, looked like they were psychotic. So they're often pacing, they have this kind of non, there's jarbly speech, um, they seem very agitated, very anxious. Um, if you treat a patient with excitatory catatonia like they're psychotic, you're going to make them much worse because you do not want to give an antipsychotic to a patient who's got catatonia. Um, and so it's really an important thing to recognize. Um, this is where sometimes you get the patients with autoimmune encephalitis, there's a bad rap for antipsychotics in this population. And largely it's because people aren't recognizing that, that difference. Um, we'll talk more about supportive therapy in a bit. Um, there's uh, also a paper that looked at patients who presented with new onset psychosis, and they broke it up into red flags and yellow flags. Um, so it should tell you that this is probably something more than the primary psychiatric disease. If you look here, the red flags are, are either they're having seizures or there's already been a workup initiated. So they have an abnormal CSF, or abnormal MRI, or abnormal EEG. So I think the yellow um, flags are really the helpful thing to help you think about when should you get um, this kind of workup started. Uh, so obviously, de decreased levels of consciousness, the abnormal movements, um, any aphasias and dysarthrias. Again, the rapid progression of psychosis or psychiatric diseases that's refractory to therapy. Similarly, a rapid and pro rapidly progressive dis uh, medication resistant uh, epilepsy would be in that category. They too also noted catatonia and other autoimmune diseases. So as we think about this uh, differential, you have a patient you now have seen enough warning signs you're thinking you're going to do a workup on, how extensive of a workup do you need to do? Um, so there's a lot of mimickers. Not all patients are going to need to be um, evaluated for all of these things, and this slide is only really up here just to show the breadth of the conditions that could be mimic an autoimmune encephalitis, um, and the importance sometimes of phoning a friend, um, depending on what you're seeing, to help work up um, what metabolic or what infectious things you might want to consider. There are certain things we think all patients should have as part of their workup, though. So we think all patients should have an MRI with and without gadolinium. CTs are not sensitive, so in patients who have MRI changes with autoimmune encephalitis, only 30% of those are seen on CT scan. In patients that you're um, concerned may have a CNS vasculitis or who present with more stroke-like symptoms, you may want to get vascular imaging, but not all patients will need that. All patients should have a lumbar puncture um, with cell counts, ideally opening pressure as well, um, and oligoclonal bands are an IgG index, which is not usually part of your standard LP lab, so that's a great thing to add um, if there's a chance this could be an autoimmune encephalitis. And then an EEG, and as I mentioned before, we really find long-term EEG, so at least 24 hours, ideally capturing um, sleep and awake states. Uh, because I am a rheumatologist, I had to give a little shout out to CNS vasculitis. Um, so uh, CNS vasculitis can be either primary or associated with other rheumatic diseases, and there can be a lot of overlap in the disease. Um, this is kind of just a broad category of inflammatory brain diseases, of which one kind of branch is the inflammatory disease that's targeting blood vessels. The other branch is really targeting more brain tissue itself. Um, uh, this is like a whole kind of conversation in and of itself, but just important to kind of recognize within autoimmune brain diseases, there are many conditions that we're going to be thinking about. And obviously there's this pans pandas that we don't exactly know which category it falls under, uh, and we're not going to talk about much today, but um, recognize it does exist. 
One thing that can be really helpful if you're not sure if you need vessel imaging or not is looking at your MRI. So if you have a normal MRI, over half of patients with autoimmune encephalitis will have a normal MRI, but almost no patients with CNS vasculitis have a normal MRI. So if you have a normal MRI, you, uh, you really don't need to be doing vessel imaging, at least early in the course, unless some other things come up unusual. Um, that otherwise is there for your reference in your handout sheets. Um, the workup here, again, is going to be somewhat variable. We do recommend the things in blue here that everybody gets, so kind of your basic labs and inflammatory parameters, a tox screen. We'll often get a lactic acid if there's any concern for a question of metabolic disease, depending on the age of the child and other features. Autoimmune encephalopathy panel, a kind of basic rheumatic workup. Oftentimes we'll start with just a DNA and then do more specific testing afterwards. But a lot of these things are going to be varied based on the input of your rheumatologist or your different um, providers. Um, thyroid disease can do anything, so we always recommend a thyroid panel and then thyroid antibodies, which can be also helpful for diagnosis of encephalitis. So coming back to our diagnostic criteria, the diagnostic criteria really started with the diagnosis of possible autoimmune encephalitis, and that's because this international working group, the emphasis of this criteria was really about starting therapy. They did not want people waiting for weeks to months. Um, sometimes these antibody tests can take several weeks to come back. So they wanted to kind of provide a clinical framework when you see this much, um, this evidence of autoimmune, potential autoimmune encephalitis that you would initiate therapy. And so this diagnosis of possible autoimmune encephalitis can be made when you have all three criteria met, an acute or subacute onset um, with rapidly progressive uh, involvement of at least one of working memory, altered mental status, or psychiatric symptoms in addition to at least one of either focal neurologic findings, seizures, CSF pleocytosis, or MRI changes that would be consistent with an encephalitis, and the dreaded reasonable exclusion of alternate diagnosis. Um, uh, the um, pediatric group, we are currently working on uh, kind of a sister paper to this that would kind of make a couple of carve-outs for pediatric disease because there are some differences. Um, one thing that we think is particularly notable is that developmental regression um, is a common feature that kids will present with. Um, and then oral bands is, is a pretty specific marker of uh, the immune system being activated in the CSF, and we would add that to this criteria. But otherwise, many of these criteria fit quite well to pediatrics. Um, again, as I mentioned before, you can have antibody-negative autoimmune encephalitis, um, and here they have a little bit more specific criteria where they're really trying to make sure that there's evidence of CNS inflammation before making this diagnosis. So again, you have the classic uh, presentation, you exclude other known uh, autoimmune encephalitides, um, but you have at least, they require two of the following, MRI changes, CSF changes, and or brain biopsy. Um, yes, we do get brain biopsies in children, not very often, but we do several a year at our institution. Um, in pediatrics, it's unclear if we're really going to require them to have two, um, because CSF, uh, pleocytosis, or certainly oligoclonal bands in the CSF may be enough um, in our populations to, to make a, a probable diagnosis. So talk about treatments here in the next little bit. So. Um, the most important thing I can uh, ask before you initiate treatment is that you complete the workup. There are sometimes you may be like, well, let's give them some steroids and see if they get better. That may, you know, be helpful. Once you give steroids or IVIG, you impact our ability to do a workup and document autoimmune encephalitis, which is going to be very important, especially if we need to be escalating to kind of stronger immunotherapy down the line. So. Uh, uh, if you can complete the workup first, um, that is definitely the best. If you have a critically ill ICU patient, you certainly might be limited. Um, but an, uh, it should really be a rare exception where you haven't completed um, that MRI, EEG, and lumbar puncture, as well as serologies. It's important to remember once you give IVIG, those patients got a big load of antibodies, pooled antibodies, so doing antibody testing on serum is a bit limited um, after giving that. 
Um, it's important to treat both the inflammatory condition and autoimmune disease as well as the symptoms um, that that uh, autoimmune disease is causing. Uh, it's important to note that immunotherapy takes time to work, um, so weeks to months, and full recovery can take 18 to 24 months. So during this period, waiting for immunotherapy to work, symptomatic therapy and, and treatment is gonna be really essential. And the goal should always be to maximize functionality. Treatments are broken down into first and second line therapy, um, and uh, uh, corticosteroids, IVIG, and plasmapheresis have been considered first line. Second line has historically been rituximab and cytoxin, but we also use some other oral immunotherapy. Uh, treatment is usually uh, broken down. If you fail to respond to first-line therapy, you move on to second-line therapy. If you respond well to first-line therapy, patients don't necessarily need the more aggressive immunotherapy. This is really just for your reference, the doses. Um, we do use a lot of IV steroids. We try to avoid oral steroids in our group. Um, IV steroids are nice because um, they don't cause a lot of the side effects you see with oral steroids in terms of the weight gain, the diabetes, and the hypertension. Um, the other nice thing about them is they self-taper over the course of the month. Um, if you want to put a patient on a month-long course of high-dose oral steroids, you're going to see some pretty significant side effects by the end of that month. And we don't see that with the, the IV steroids. Um, but there are no current data right now to support which combination or which of these um, therapies you should start with as part of your first-line therapy. Does people, do they just get steroids? they get IVIG2? When should you do plasmapheresis, which is a, obviously a higher-risk procedure in kids especially? Um, so uh, we usually start with um, IV steroids and IVIG in our hospitalized patients, um, often just IV steroids in our outpatients, um, especially in the early courses as we're completing their workup. We do very little plasmapheresis in our institution, but some institutions use it more. Um, for decisions about escalating to second-line therapy, really the only data there is is for escalating uh, in hospitalized or critically ill patients, and that data is that if they're not improving in 10 to 14 days or are declining on first-line therapy, you should escalate to second-line therapy. Uh, in the outpatient setting, we usually give a two to three month course of first line therapy um, and then escalate if they uh, show any decline during that period of time or they have failure to have full efficacy. Um, prior to increasing or uh, escalating therapy, it's really important to kind of just do a gut check in terms of how confident we are that this is an autoimmune encephalitis. Um, reassess, do we think these new symptoms are actually part of their recovery or do we think this is really a sign of active uh, autoimmune disease? Um, and just for you to continue to be prepared that this is gonna be a slow process. We're not gonna talk much about these. Again, this is more for reference, but I do want to just highlight that both rituximab and cyclophosphamide, so big second-line medications, are gonna take time to work. You're often gonna see very quick responses to IVIG and steroids if patients are responsive, so you know days. Uh, rituximab classically is gonna be two to three months before you're gonna see significant improvements on that medicine. Cyclophosphamide a little sooner, one to two months in this population. So during that time, you're going to need to continue that first line of immunotherapy, um, and you need to prepare the parents because they're going to be like, they got rituximab, no better. Um, I've seen patients who've gotten rituximab a month later, they're not better, they get discharged to an inpatient psychiatric facility because it's just injury. Um, they're not continuing any first line immunotherapy, and you need to continue to treat that underlying inflammatory condition while you wait for these second line agents to start working. Adjunct therapy is really critical at all stages of disease. So this is really where we find having psychiatry, neurology, and rheumatology involved really from the time of diagnosis throughout the recovery period is really important. Psychiatry can be incredibly helpful in the inpatient setting for these patients who have catatonia or hallucinations, helping develop behavior plans and medication escalations depending on their symptoms. Um, neurology obviously is helping manage the seizures and the movement disorders and the neurologic manifestations, and rheumatology and escalating or de-escalating immunotherapy. 
There's also a real important role for, for rehab services, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and recognizing that these kids are gonna have a lot of cognitive fatigue as they return back to school that you're gonna need to prepare for. Um, we actually are following more of the concussion model in terms of reentry to school and how to escalate back up um, and kind of similar model. It's important to recognize that there are a lot of issues with quote psych medications. Um, when you put a child on a quote psych medication and parents feel that they have therefore a quote psych diagnosis which they don't want to have on their record so there's often a lot of pushback about starting these medications there's also some information on the blogosphere that these medications shouldn't be started in autoimmune encephalitis because it's quote a medical diagnosis and therefore they shouldn't be on these other medications um, so it often takes a lot of teamwork and really um, starting right from the beginning of engaging the symptomatic therapy we say if your child is seizing, even if it's from an inflammatory disorder, we're still going to try to treat the seizures with anti-epileptics. If your child is psychotic or catatonic, we still need to treat those symptoms, even if the underlying mechanism from it is an inflammatory condition. Those treatments will not work well if you're not also treating the inflammatory state, so obviously you're doing these things all together, um, but it's really important to kind of really uh, relate to the families how these therapies all work together. So the last few minutes here, I'd like to present some of the boundaries of autoimmune encephalitis. Um, so this is a 13-year-old patient, previously healthy male. He got his meningitis vaccine, and one week later, woke up, acutely woke up one morning, just hysterical, crying, super anxious, panicking. He cried and was just in a panic state for over eight hours, um, expressing a desire not to live. He lost the ability to read and, and had very poor handwriting. Um, he started having hallucinations, both visual and auditory. He was complaining of daily headaches and an inability to sleep. He's a 13-year-old who is now sleeping in his parents' bed, um, which he hadn't done since he was like one, um, uh, just in a real state of, um, uh, of, an of panic. His workup uh, revealed uh, a slightly elevated von Willebrand's factor, which is a non-specific marker of inflammation, but everything else was negative. Um, he, there were some complications with insurance, real, real world medicine happening here, um, and he was unable to get his EEG, um, and he had ordered neuropsych testing, which he happened to have his return to insurance at the time it was uh, ordered and had neuropsych testing uh, performed. And he was found to have marked impairments really across multiple domains. Um, he had a full-scale IQ at the second percentile, and this is a kid who was a previously straight-A 13-year-old. Um, he had abnormalities in visual perception at the first percentile. Um, he had issues with visual motor uh, perception and motor skills. Um, his a drawing was at a four-year-old level. His verbal comprehension was at the sixth percentile, and his uh, reason perceptual reasoning was at the first percentile. So really across multiple domains, dramatic declines. This is just a writing sample. This is his pre-illness writing. This is him um, when he was able to write some. Uh, this is him as he's in recovery, um, as we started therapy on him, tracing letters again. He then is able to write a brief sentence, then is able to do schoolwork, and then eventually is back to his baseline. Um, so he uh, was had, because of his clinical course and the degree of his neuropsychiatric um, abnormalities really across domains that did not fit with a primary psychiatric disease, he was treated with IVIG and steroids and actually then started on Celsept. Um, and a year later, his repeat IQ testing was 105. Um, he is now a junior in high school um, and is an AB student and doing very well off all immunotherapy. So this brings us to kind of where are the edges of autoimmune encephalitis? What do we know and what do we don't know? Um, so this is a really exciting area of medicine and we're recognizing these conditions, um, but we have imperfect tests, um, which we know. Um, there's questions of itis versus apathy, right? If you don't have an abnormality on your lumbar puncture or MRI, can you have an encephalitis? Um, we don't really have great uh, imaging techniques to really detect uh, some of these changes. 
There has been more work on PET and SPEC um, in these populations to see if we're better able to detect some of the abnormalities in those patients. Um, we are, haven't yet been able to really define it, that there are classic key features that should really tell us this is autoimmune encephalitis versus primary psychiatric disease. So right now we have to cast the net a little broader, um, recognizing not everyone needs a workup, but that when in doubt, it's better to do the workup than not, because these are very treatable conditions. Um, and then there's this question of, is there ever a time where it's appropriate to do a diagnostic trial of a medication, a first-line therapy, um, to see if there's reversibility to a patient's symptoms? Um, I just like, give a shout out to the neuropsychiatric testing here, and I was just at a conference two weeks ago, and you have a fantastic team here doing neuropsych testing on patients with these kind of conditions versus other, and they are finding similar um, results to what we found, really these kind of profound drops in uh, IQ and really affecting kind of across domains of your neuropsych testing that is much more uh, suggestive of an autoimmune encephalitis. It is not diagnostic, as you hopefully have learned today. There is no single test that is diagnostic of an autoimmune encephalitis. This really is kind of where a wheelhouse of rheumatologists, where we have our diagnostic criteria and you try to put enough pieces together uh, to make the diagnosis. Um, but this is another marker or another clue that this may be something more than primary psychiatric disease. Um, Really, the benefits of this team approach um, for us has been uh, it's really helped get a more prompt diagnosis and treatment of our patients. Um, really uh, helped uh, families kind of have a better roadmap of kind of what to expect going forward. We've been able to reduce actually our admission rates and the lengths of stay of these patients since including psychiatry in our team three years ago, um, as well as improving family satisfaction and honestly physician satisfaction. So these patients are quite intense um, and challenging to take care of. They really stretch the abilities of, of most of us um, in different fields. And so having a team in place where you can really bounce things off of, um, especially as you're working in some kind of more of that gray area of these diseases is really helpful. Uh, so in conclusion, um, kind of big take-homes I hope that um, you'll take away from this talk is that the clinical course is really the key feature in making a diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis with then supporting diagnostic tests. The response to immunotherapy is really variable, um, that you may need to escalate to second-line therapy before you see significant improvement, but it is a slow process. Um, these medications do take time to work, um, and it's important to continue first-line therapy while you have a patient um, escalating to second-line therapy. Um, multidisciplinary teams really can enhance the care for, for patients, um, improve your outcomes, improve patient and physician satisfaction, and do things that hospitals like, like reduce admission rates and uh, lengths of stay. Um, uh, I'd like to acknowledge kind of our team, um, Dr. Galantine, William Galantine is the neurologist I work with. Gina Mooningham has been our psychiatrist for the past year and is fantastic and super helpful. Um, and then really to all of our division and uh, my division, uh, uh, rheumatology and neurology and all the house officers who help manage these patients' um, references and then uh, obviously questions.